travellers, and welcome to Podcast 82 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Mick Webb, and me, Simon Calder. Last Sunday, I recorded these church bells at Lutherstadt Wittenberg, birthplace of the revolution at the spot where Martin Luther preached religious revolution five centuries ago. It was yet another trip to one of my favourite corners of Europe, Saxony in southeastern Germany, which I was very happy to visit during the Cold War when it was part of the former German Democratic Republic, knowing full well that all my hard-won, hard-currency Deutschmarks were going to prop up a state communist dictatorship. And that is relevant because at a time when so many countries are out of bounds because of different governments, different ways of combating COVID, um, we're wondering whether there might be other reasons ethical reasons for not going back to some countries when the bans and restrictions are eventually lifted. Now, to help us through the minefield of argument about um, ethics and uh, morality of travel, we are joined by Dr. Emily Thomas, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Durham, and whose uh, excellent book, The Meaning of Travel, we talked about in a previous podcast. Hello again, Emily. Hello again. Good to be here. It's nice to talk to you again. Can I just explain, Emily, what sparked our interest in the idea of um, ethical travel? It's because during recent podcasts, we've been comparing the respective attractions of two travel or tourist destinations in a kind of head-to-head contest over several rounds, amounting to what you could call a modern travel pentathlon or heptathlon. Uh, the number of rounds vary. It could even be a sextathlon, though that might give the wrong impression. Anyway, <laughs> Zimbabwe v Zambia was one of our contests. Uh, that was Zim v Zam. Um, And this led to the following exchange between us. Amongst other things, we've had the highest point, the best beaches, uh, the number of Olympic medals or quality of them, um, food and drink, best food, best drink, best thing to do, best things to see. And we've also... um, toyed with the idea of the human rights record as being rather an important um, event in its own right, which I've got to say, uh, I think on reflection would disqualify both of our, um, both of our contestants from last week, Zimbabwe and Zambia, where um, I think uh, um, being gay is actually illegal in both countries. And uh, we certainly can't allow that, can we? No, um, and and uh, well, that's a that's a whole new podcast, isn't it? The uh, the ethics of of traveling yeah. and whether you are supporting uh, regimes with with horrible human rights records or whether you're actually um, enhancing the local um, revenue and also just just talking to people and finding out what's happening and and making that known. It's a tricky old subject. It is, isn't it, Emily? But uh, does it matter? I definitely think it does matter, yes. When I travel somewhere, I don't want to make human rights in a country worse than they already are, or even just confirm a poor state of human rights at a particular time. Um, That must rule you out of many, many places, certainly not Germany, there are many other places in Western Europe, but I mean, if you were to stray into, say, Hungary, well, would you not stray into Hungary? I think 
that historically, of course, I don't think there's any country historically that doesn't have problems in their human rights record. Um, but looking at human rights today, I think some countries are far worse than others. Um, and what I don't want to do is make anything worse by being a tourist there. Um, so if I could be satisfied that my being a tourist would make things better, then I'd be very glad to go. But I definitely don't want to worsen things. It, that, that seems to me like a sound ethical principle, right? You don't want to make people's lives worse by your act of visiting where they live. That's a bit like... Um... A doctor, isn't it? Do no harm. I think that's a very um, reasonable way to start. Um, but how do you know? I mean, it's very difficult to know, isn't it, whether or not what you're doing is going to cause harm or indeed what the situation really is before you go there. Because um, how do we find out? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good, difficult question. There have been a lot of empirical studies conducted around whether travel boycotts work, and you know, do they do they actually succeed in say withholding money from oppressive regimes, and or actually do they not do very much at all? And as best I can tell, the empirical evidence is inconclusive. So there are particular case studies that seem to point us in one direction or other. For example, there have been boycotts of um, particular like animal sanctuaries or zoos um, where people have thought the conditions there weren't the best and those have been very successful. And we also have examples going the other way. So during the 60s, sports tourism between the US and China, um, it was credited as being a kind of force for diplomacy, for opening channels. Um, but as far as I can tell, all these case studies are about really particular instances. It doesn't seem like there's evidence about whether going or not going is good on a big scale. Well, can I talk about a couple of boycotts which I've either kind of participated in or even been been party to? Um, so I think um, that, that certainly from from mix of my point of view, we are I think um, rather significantly older than you, Emily. Um, <laughs> up to the mid nineteen nineties, nobody um, that, that we knew, and certainly not ourselves, would dream of going to South Africa. Um, mm. it, some people, some British people were, of course, and um, it's got long, long connections. And then suddenly, um, mid 1990s onwards, I, you could barely, barely stop me from, from going there. Um, uh, of course, nobody wanted to support or be seen to support apartheid. And then uh, round about that, the time that South Africa became uh, OK to visit, in, in my eyes, at least, um, mm. Myanmar, Burma uh, became very much not okay to visit um, in particular and this is why the independent for a long time um, had a, a, a policy of not even mentioning um, uh, yeah. not publishing travel pieces about uh, Myanmar um, because mm. um, they had uh, slavery effectively creating tourism infrastructure and that was a very very direct uh, uh, relationship you go there you are saying yeah it's great that um, all your political prisoners built this beautiful five-star hotel um uh, on the road to mandalay um thanks very much for that um hope they hope they're feeling better um so we that, that was a, a kind of definite no-go uh, area of course that then subsequently changed with Aung San Suu Kyi being uh, freed from house arrest and so on but now of course is is Myanmar 
with its many human rights concerns, um, a, a, a reasonable place to go. It's so such a tangle. And um, well, I, 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 we have our decisions to make as travellers, but um, that's why we need some <laughs> philosophical guidance from you. Well, what what I can offer are some things to help you make up your own mind. So I think one thing to think about is what you are trying to achieve when you decide to visit or not visit. So one way of making ethical decisions is to say, I have my ethical principles and I will uphold them no matter what. And that might include not giving tourist money to oppressive regimes, in which case you're going to think there's no circumstances under which it's acceptable for me to visit this country as a tourist. But on the other hand, you might adopt a more consequentialist approach and think, well, giving money to oppressive regimes is bad, but if it's a means to an end of fostering cultural exchange and ultimately giving money to local people and improving their lives, then maybe that's okay. And, and, you know, there is some evidence that this happens, that um, that when you visit a country with an oppressive regime, the people is obviously not the government. Um, And so by improving their lives, um, ultimately, you will be empowering them to help throw off their oppressive government. Ah, now that's that's interesting because um, I, I... I was sort of um, led towards this uh, consequentialist approach, I think, um, on my very first journey abroad because um, mm-hmm. I went uh, with a friend from school to Franco, Spain when I was about 17. I've got uh, 16 going on 17. I must say um, I had absolutely uh, – no clue about what was going on in Franco Spain. Well, that's a grammar school education for you of the time. And uh, uh, I I, kind of went because I was fascinated by what I thought I might find there after what I'd read in the, in in a in a couple of novels and uh, but uh, nobody at uh, nobody in my uh, uh, I suppose my uh, my my home or in my neighborhood ever really discussed travel at all anybody who'd actually been abroad to somewhere like Majorca uh, was considered to be extremely lucky uh, and uh, it wasn't ever considered uh, that there was a, a political or ethical um, side to this and then I re- remember very very clearly just before I set out on my epic journey with Gerald Bernstein <laughs> to uh, Valencia um, I-, I went to have a meal with I suppose the most middle-class person I knew, a guy called John, who was a friend of mine uh, um, at school. Uh, and I went to the big house that his parents had, and they had very posh jobs. I can't really remember what they were. but Philosophers, um, surely. <laughs> Philosophers are not so posh anymore, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, we sat down to uh, a very posh meal, and John's mum uh, asked me what I was going to be doing in the summer. And I said, oh, I'm going to Spain. And she said, are you really, dear? Uh, and then said, um, what about Franco? And I said, uh, well, what about him? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I, and that was when I was introduced to what I considered at the time to be a very um, middle class uh, idea, which was that uh, um, if you went uh, abroad and gave your money to a repressive regime, um, this was tantamount to voting for them, if you see what I mean. And uh, I uh, thought, 
well, it's too late to do anything about this. And um, what the hell? Who cares anyway? Uh, and then I went and then I met the repressive regime uh, in the form of various um, brutal policemen. And I also tried to talk to people about the repressive regime, quite a lot of whom were too scared to talk about it. Or maybe they just found my Spanish so bad <laughs> that they couldn't answer the questions. But um Eventually, I came to the conclusion, having discussed it with Gerald Bernstein, that actually we had so little money that um, you could not ever say that we were contributing <laughs> to the local economy. In fact, quite the opposite. So um, therefore, uh, what we got out of it and what we possibly managed to um, uh, communicate to other people was, I suppose, what you were saying earlier, Emily, sort of tip the scales in the fa in favour of certainly not doing any harm, and actually, I reckon in educational terms, doing quite a lot of good to mm. us. It, I think it can definitely be good for us. I mean, I visited Israel and Palestine a few years ago, which I think people will think is controversial for various reasons, and I thought I was reasonably well informed about the political situation, but actually being there in person talking to lots of people and um, I had this amazing taxi journey with a journalist who just quizzed the taxi driver and then everyone else we succeeded <laughs> to meet about everything she could think of and um, I felt like I learned so much and it's really changed the way I think about mm. things so yeah without a doubt this cultural exchange goes both ways. Uh, it does. And now, um, just uh, as a point of um, hi history, at the same time as Mick was um, blithely uh, being assured by his grammar school that um, it was absolutely fine to go to Spain, what, what's the problem? 15 me, miles away. They gave away. me £10 to go. <laughs> they didn't. From the school fund. Seriously? <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't have any money. So uh, they, they, I, I wrote a letter asking for um, a grant from something called the school fund, which I got. So they really did condone it. <laughs> Well, yes. So, so I, I see the headline now: Surrey School funnels money to Franco regime. Oh no! Do you know that was the Surrey School that was then attended? I have told you many times about this, Simon. Um, uh, by, by Sir Keir Starmer. Sir Keir Starmer. <laughs> so um, he won't. He won't want to know that. I don't think. <laughs> um, right. So, meanwhile, on the other side of Gatwick Airport. Um, where, by the way, I was working cleaning out the planes that were taking the tourists to Franco, Spain. So I guess I was in some way complicit. Mm, um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, until uh, the dictator died, my parents, who were very, very liberal and said, basically, you can go, go wherever you want, do whatever you want to do, but you can't go to Spain because they were uh, uh, brought up in the in, in the 30s, of course, the... Um, Spanish Civil War was on. So many British people went and fought, and um, you know the result was this um, decades-long uh, fascist dictatorship. They said, "You know, you're not going there." And um, yeah. of course, as soon as uh, uh, democracy was restored, I, I, I was off and um, uh, had a, a splendid time on one of my many visits. But I'm fascinated by Emily's uh, going to Israel and Palestine and just talking to people because, I mean, in the past. Um, well, just in 2018, I went to Russia three times, two of them, thanks to Vladimir Putin. And I can barely believe I'm saying that. Um, I, I love Russia. I uh, have done for many years, visited when it was a, a, a Soviet uh, dictatorship as opposed to a um, uh, Putin-esque dictatorship. Um, and 
I, I went out there for the World Cup in 2018 and then Vladimir Putin on the night of the final, and you didn't need a visa to go for the match, he said, OK, everybody, if you've got the right card, an ID card to show you're a football fan, come back anytime you want for the rest of the year. So I said thank you. Well, not directly to him and went back a couple of times more. But it was entirely kind of small scale tourism, getting, finding local guides, trying to f- stay in local hotels so that you could hand your money directly to people um, rather than to great um, monolithic uh, Soviet organisations, as I had done through okay. the 80s. But are you sure about that, though, Simon? I mean, is is that actually a fact that if you hand your money to a local person, then that doesn't really have uh, uh, consequences for... <laughs> the economy of the whole um the whole oh, sorry oh, sure, structure yes. there, there will be a multiplier effect it was it, maybe it's just a good way to assuage one's conscience i mean i think one issue is even if you're being careful to give your money to locals rather than to government there is still the potential ideological pr thing if you like that just by visiting a country, you could be seen to be giving tacit approval to what's going on there. So even if you're succeeding in not paying the government, it, um, maybe it just looks bad, like you're kind of approving of what the government does. Yeah, very good point. Um, and I, I, is, is there any any way of getting around that? Or do you just have to accept that your choices are going to be making a statement uh, uh, which will you know, boost by one the number of tourists where where oppressive regime X can say, um, yeah, we had 365,241 from um, uh, Britain and you're the one. I'm, I'm sad to say, I don't think there is. It, it, but but you might just consider this a means to an end. You know, the, the end being ultimately improving rights in the country by, by talking to people, for example. Just in support of this, I don't know if you came across this. Back in 2009, there was this big study about how the introduction of cable TV had a greater impact on rural women in India lives than any other factor <laughs> over the last few decades. And the idea was people were watching TV and seeing alternative ways of being. And this led to a huge improvement in contraception, delaying pregnancy, improving literacy and education. And so this idea that cultural exchange can have positive impacts i mean it really isn't just words it seems like it really might be able to i i I suppose a good example is um cuba which um in the 1980s was um, almost impossible to get into as a tourist suddenly halfway through the 1990s when the supply of uh, cash from moscow had dried up um Fidel Castro said, right, uh, only tourism can save Cuba. And in we went. And um, yes, there's still many, many people going on Cuba to holiday, uh, going on holiday to Cuba when it's not on the uh, UK government's red list. Um, Spending money, uh, local people, it is said, being chased away from the uh, loveliest uh, uh, beaches in the resort of Baradero and a kind of two class society, but one which I have watched over the decades becoming actually um uh, much more kind of functioning and much more much more equal i i hope i'm not um uh, persuading myself of this but but they've got rid of the kind of two tier currency system um and they and it's and, and of course everything that the uh, 
Cubans find out about uh, the West, everything the West finds out about Cuba is is trying to improve understanding in the same way as um, Emily's journey to Israel and Palestine. So that's how I justify that particular thing. But can we talk about um, particular forms of tourism, in particular things where you are going to visit um, slums or you're going on the trail of Pablo Escobar in Medellin, in, um, in, in Colombia? Should we be doing that, Emily? Slum tourism in particular has a really long history. I mean, it goes back to the upper classes visiting slums in Victorian London. Uh, This isn't a new phenomenon. It has been around for a long time. And and there has been some work done on it. So obviously today it's extremely popular in Brazil, in South Africa. People go and, and visit these incredibly poor dwelling places and the jury seems to be out as best I can tell so on the one hand slum tourist associations that are developed from within the slum it actually seem to have quite positive and economic impacts on people who live there and in contrast when the tourism is being developed by external organizations it really doesn't seem to be that positive it seems like um, the people who live in the slums are just being taken advantage of so it it really does seem to be uh, you have to judge it on a case-by-case basis but what does trouble me in particular with slum tourism it is it does seem like part of the attraction for tourists is sort of feeling good about their own lives. Quite a lot of studies have shown what people enjoy, the contrasts. And I feel very uncomfortable with that, actually. That seems really exploitative in a way that that I really don't feel good about. Understood. You you mentioned also um, the... Uh, in, in terms of responsible travel, the the role of um, international organisations, international companies, and you know, I guess big tour operators and so on, um, they make it very very easy for us to venture to uh, countries with uh, dubious um, uh, regimes. Um, they very rarely will 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 even uh, mention uh, the the fact and. Of course, um, there is, whereas um, perhaps you and I are trying to spend money locally, um, most definitely money goes into the hands of international hotel groups, the local regime who've probably got this oligarchy who've all invested in the hotels and restaurants and so on. Um, Is is the manner in which we actually plan and book and take our trip, is that going to be relevant? I think it is, definitely. And I think you can draw a good parallel here with um, traveling to places that are environmentally precarious. So just in the same way, say you want to go visit a glacier in Argentina. um, I think a responsible traveler would look up, um, at least attempt to research, you know, at which tour operator is going to take you there in an environmentally conscious way. And I think you can do exactly the same when you're traveling to the, you know, at more far-flung countries with dubious human rights records. I mean, it, it is worth noting that the vast majority of tourists are going to countries um, with less dubious human rights records. Uh, you know, isn't the, the worse a country is yeah. in this respect, the, the more inaccessible it is. Very few of us are going to get to Myanmar now or North Korea, say. Yeah, I was just wondering whether there were any kind of... Uh, um 
if you like, red lines, cut and dried uh, things that we could say would make a real difference to whether uh, any tour operator or ourselves should actually go to certain countries. I mean, it does seem to me that when when a when a particular uh, uh, human rights abuse seems to be uh, baked into the country's uh, legislative program, that seems to be a very good reason for not going there. So I looked up, for example, um, where homosexuality is outlawed, uh, actually illegal, and it is. Uh, there are sixty nine countries where actually it is illegal to be gay. That's 69. That's an extraordinary number, isn't it, really? Uh, And it would uh, take out quite a lot of places where people go in order to see wonderful animals and to generally have a good time. Um, Don't you think that maybe uh, if the the world was to sort of uh, uh, start to think about these ethical approaches, that would be quite a good one? I think it would be really wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. We mentioned uh, Myanmar and South Africa of the past earlier. I share the intuition that visiting those countries was a red line, if you like. But I think there were quite specific reasons in both cases. You know, in the case of Myanmar, we were asked um, by a political leader to boycott the country, to make a political statement. And in the case of South Africa, as you say, um, you know, the racism was baked into the the, the laws of the country. Um, And with the United States, I'm sure that that is the case in subtle ways. But it seems more to be the case that you know, legally, the US is against racism. And unfortunately, practically, that just doesn't always work itself out. And so when widespread abuse is baked into the laws, that seems like a good reason not to go. Well, you're talking about racism being baked into South African law. Of course, if you don't need to look very far back in the United States, particularly in the South, uh, to find similar things going on in the 60s. Homosexuality in the UK was only legalised in 1967. And and even so, uh, racist and homophobic attitudes uh, have prevailed for decades since then. So um, maybe, and this perhaps takes us to uh, the starting point again, um, where human contact and just meeting people and exploring differences and exchanging ideas, um, which is what tourism basically does in its best form, um, maybe that is inevitably a force for good. Or maybe I'm just um, trying to uh, uh, justify my uh, many meanderings around Eastern Europe um, under communism to not just East Germany, but Romania and Albania um, at a time when, yes, all that cash was going to prop up those terrible regimes. Um, Guilty as charged, Emily? I am as well, I'm afraid. (laughs) Yes, I visited my share of dubious countries. Yeah, me too as well. I mean, uh, I think it's probably time to um, uh, wrap up, but uh, I think that uh, I will take away from this the idea of uh, um, certainly doing no harm and doing my best to do a bit of good as 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 a um as a sort of um working hypothesis for my travels i think that's a good way to live life
Well, and I shall take away this a renewed, uh, renewed um, purpose of asking questions and just uh, finding out from, from people. Of course, we'd love to hear from you about the issues raised today. Where wouldn't you go? Why not? Where have you been that others might think, well, I'm not sure about that. We're in, on Twitter, of course, at you should have BT. Or if you'd like to send us an audio message, just um, uh, leave your wise words up to a minute's worth by visiting anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. In our uh, next podcast, we'll revisit the modern pentathlon, heptathlon, sextathlon. Let us know if you have a couple of countries or destinations that you think we could usefully compare and contrast. So far, we've done um, Zim v Zam. Zet v Zan, that's uh, Shetland v Zante, and Slov v Slov. Well, that's Slovakia v Slovenia. Uh, I don't suppose, Emily, you'd uh, like to suggest a pair of contenders. <laughs> I have a controversial one. How about China versus Japan? Ooh, brilliant. Yes. Yes. Chin v Jap. Right. Okay. <laughs> we will put that on the list. That's a very interesting one. Well, thank you very much indeed for that idea. We will explore it further. And for all your many words of wisdom, Emily, Dr. Emily Thomas, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Durham, whose excellent book, The Meaning of Travel, is doing very well indeed and should be doing even better. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, I'll second all of that. So until next time, from me, Mick Webb, me, Simon Calder. And me, Emily Thomas. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.